For those of you who weren't here last night, I'd really like to welcome you to the beginning of this year's three-month retreat, which, as we remarked last night, is the 25th since the beginning in 1975. It seems quite historic to me. And I can't help but notice tonight that this half of the hall is a little more densely populated than this half of the hall. And I don't know if you've noticed, but there are only three rows of Zabatons for the men. There are four rows for the women, and the women are still denser. So what does that say about the spiritual center of gravity for our culture these days? I don't know, but hats off to the women. After the opening last night, uh, the teachers went back in the staff room and were just talking about how inspired we all felt by the opening. It was really by your commitment seeing that so many of you have come together to dedicate this much of your life to deepening your Dharma practice is very, very touching and very moving for us. For myself, I've been on your side quite a lot in these retreats. I've been at about eight of these retreats in the past, mostly as a yogi, sometimes on staff. This is the first time I get to be on this side of the equation, and I feel really honored Uh, to be here. I think what's great in uh, teaching a long retreat is being able to watch how much uh, change, how much growth, and how much opening you all go through. And it's, it's very touching for us on the teaching side, and for me it really strengthens my faith. You know, I just see again and again, this stuff works. This stuff really has the power to transform lives and uproot suffering. So it's really a privilege Uh, to be here with you, and I'm looking forward to getting to know a lot of you and uh, seeing the rest of you over the course of these six weeks. It's really a time of rejoicing, and I hope you feel that also. You know, sometimes we go into a long retreat, and we go into our room after the opening Dharma talk, and we close the door, and the silence is really palpable. And, you know, sometimes there's that little gulp of, what have I gotten myself into? here. And there's understandably a little apprehension at the start of a long retreat, but I also hope you'll feel and really tune into and let yourself appreciate the joyfulness of this beginning. Because I can't think of, uh, I actually can't think of any other activity, any other form of life that is such a great support for strengthening the wholesome qualities of mind and heart. So we all have a lot to be thankful for in being here. The outcome from our work together will really do a lot for each other, for ourselves, and ultimately for the world. So I really want to appreciate you for taking the time to dedicate yourself to this work. This period of withdrawal from a busy life Time to slow down, time to be quiet, just time to contemplate, is a way of life that is praised by every culture that is grounded in spiritual values. And it's something that's even more needed today, I feel. This is a quote from a uh, Tibetan teacher in Ladakh named Drukchen Rinpoche whom Andrew Harvey met when he was traveling in Ladakh some years ago and wrote about in a book called Journey to Ladakh. 
It's a young Tibetan Lama who's uh, been exposed to the Western ways. Drukchen Rinpoche said, I was given a Western education for which I am grateful in many ways, but I lost something. I lost the peace of mind that I might have had in another generation. Everyone in our generation lives in a fragmented, complex, and disturbing time in which it is hard to keep one's spiritual balance, hard to find the time to build the balance in the first place. I feel increasingly that I must go into retreat more, must meditate more, must discipline myself more. Otherwise, I shall be of no use to my people. I really like this passage because not only does it remind us what we're doing here and the importance of it in bringing that balance into our own lives, but it also reminds us of uh, what I hope is a motivation that we all share, that we're doing this work not just for ourselves alone, but we really have the understanding right from the beginning that the work we do will benefit those that we come in contact with and that those circles will spread out in ways we may never understand. So we say that we do our practice in order to benefit all sentient beings everywhere. And we never know, of course, if our actual practice has or not. But this is our understanding. This is the way that we practice. So I'd like to talk tonight about one of the aspects of the retreat that is a great support for our practice and a great support for our awakening. And that is the aspect of renunciation. Obviously, one of the biggest differences between what we do here and what we do in our daily life outside is around this aspect of simplicity of lifestyle, of having put aside a lot of the occupations and, in many cases, distractions that we live with day by day. The archetype, of course, for this kind of practice was the Buddha who as a young man, just 29 years old, was visited by the heavenly messengers in the form of a sick person, an aging person, a corpse, and then a renunciate. And after being visited by those, saw the vulnerability that we're all exposed to of illness, aging, and death, and the possibility of a way out. The Bodhisattva understood that within this bodily form, we're all subject to suffering. And from that understanding, dedicated his life to finding the way out. So he left home at 29. And I'm sure you know the story, so I'll just read this short passage from the middle-length discourses. While still young, a black-haired young man endowed with the blessings of youth in the prime of life, I shaved off my hair and beard, though my mother and father wished otherwise and grieved with tearful faces. I put on the yellow robe and went forth from the home life into homelessness. This is really the same journey that each of you has made in coming here, in leaving behind family, in leaving behind friends, perhaps in leaving behind children or parents, you have all made that step of renunciation, of leaving the home life. And for the time that you're here, whether it's six months, uh, six weeks, or three months, you're really in a homeless kind of lifestyle. It's sort of a floating monastery that 
we create for the time that you're here. And in this homeless life, you've had to give up, you've had to renounce a lot of comfort. The Buddha gave up all his comforts, as you probably know. You probably know the story of how the idea at the time was that if he mortified the flesh, the spirit would be liberated. So he began to consciously starve the body. And he was eating one spoon of rice a day, and then one spoon of rice a week, and then one grain of rice a day. And this is the time in the Bodhisattva's career when he became extremely thin, what's called the emaciated Buddha. And he says of his life at that time, my vertebrae stood out on my spine like beads on a cord. My ribs jutted out as gaunt as the crazy rafters of an old roofless barn. When I touched my belly skin, I could feel my backbone. Fortunately, this is not required practice here at IMS. Fortunately for us, the Buddha came to say that the mortification of the flesh didn't work and turned back to the middle path of taking enough food to be healthy and to keep the body fit and strong, but not indulging in luxury. I'm reminded of the power of this quality of renunciation. Michelle mentioned that she and I were on staff together in the late 70s. In fact, the last uh, thing that I remember doing on staff was giving the manager's talk for a retreat. It was kind of a special retreat for us at the time. In the spring of 1979, we were visited by somebody that I'd been hearing about for a lot of years, somebody who's one of the greatest meditation masters of this century, and that was Mahasi Sayadaw was really his meditation technique that uh, we teach and practice during this retreat. And he was responsible for founding hundreds, if not thousands, of meditation centers in his lifetime. And really, you could almost say reviving uh, the widespread practice of meditation in Burma. So Mahasi Sayadaw was the teacher of Joseph's teacher, Manindra, and also the teacher of one of Jack's teachers, Ajahn Asaba, whom he practiced with in Thailand. So we were very excited to have him come visit. You know, he was sort of the grandfather of our whole Sangha. And as a staff person, I got to go to the airport to meet him. A few of us drove there and, you know, went into Logan and we waited at the gate where his flight pulled in. And we were standing at the gate and watching all the people walk off. No monks. A lot of people kept coming out. No monks were appearing. You know, and it's hard to overlook bald men in brown curtains. So uh, we were pretty sure we hadn't missed him. Everybody filed off the plane, still no monks. We were getting a little worried. You know, did they miss their connection in Bangkok? Did we get the wrong day? What's going on? So we were standing there, still intently watching the exit gate. And then very slowly, very mindfully, one step at a time, came Mahasi Sayadaw and four other monks who were traveling with him. And each of them was carrying a fan. If you see any photos from that retreat, and there are some around in the archives of IMS, you'll see these brown fans that they all carried. And they had orange embroidered lettering on them that said something like, I can't remember it exactly, it was something like, Venerable Mahasi Sayadaw, 1979 World Tour. So, you know, so the rock star lineage of the tour was in effect. 
And it was really a very uh, powerful assembly. Uh, Mahasi Sayadaw himself, of course, was, was very renowned, and he brought with him two monks who have continued to teach Westerners, who I know some of you have practiced with, one of whom was uh, Sayadaw Ujanaka, who still teaches Westerners in Burma. Another was Sayadaw Usilananda, who lives and teaches in the Bay Area now, and two other monks as well. And at the time, I was still fairly young in my practice. I'd been practicing for a couple of years at that point. And looking back, I, didn't, I feel I didn't appreciate their teachings as much as I would today. There was a simplicity and an unadorned quality to their teachings that at the time I wasn't quite mature enough to receive. I enjoyed being with them and certain qualities of their being I really was struck by a lot. But the teachings um, at the time I found a little bit dry. I wish now I'd had a chance to go back and listen again because basically what these men were about was repeating the words of the Buddha. But not just in a blind way, they were repeating the words of the Buddha as they had proved them and experienced them through their own lives and practice. And individually, they had a great deal of power. There was kind of a purity and a nobility and a great power in the presence of every one of these monks. And I could tell right away, you know, I was just a staff person here, they didn't need anything from me. Joseph and Sharon and Jack and Jacqueline were the teachers. They didn't need anything from them either. You know, they had their air tickets home. And they were so self-reliant in a way that I felt was a great testament to their renunciation. They were complete within themselves. And because of that, they had an unshakability. They weren't looking to be liked. They weren't looking to impress us. They were just there. Renunciation is actually one of the ten paramis. The paramis are these qualities of heart and mind that when developed fully bring the mind to liberation. Renunciation in the Theravadan list is actually the third of these qualities. Some synonyms for renunciation which give you a sense of its power are relinquishment and letting go, both of which point to the uh, undoing of grasping. If grasping is symbolized by a closed fist, renunciation is symbolized by the open hand, much like generosity. And as you probably know, grasping and the undoing of grasping is the heart of the Buddha's teaching. Renunciation goes right to that heart. This is from the Dhammapada. If by renouncing a lesser happiness, one attains to a happiness which is greater, then the wise pursue that happiness which is greater. In the list of the paramis, it said that the proximate cause of renunciation, what really triggers it, is a sense of spiritual urgency. And I imagine that most of you can relate with that. Having committed this much of your time to Dharma practice, I have a feeling that there's a little fire going on in all of you that is that fire of, of ardor and urgency. I want to just tell a few stories about uh, renunciation in the Buddhist tradition. One of the great uh, Tibetan masters of the century is a teacher named Dingo Kense Rinpoche. This is his photograph. I realize some of you may not be able to see it very well in the back. 
but he was uh, one of the leaders of the Rime school, a school that tried to unify the different Tibetan sects. He was a com- very accomplished in the Nyingma and the Kagyu uh, methods of meditation, and very loving and compassionate man. Uh, Kensei Rinpoche spent about 22 years in retreat in his life, over the course of his life. And I just thought I would read to you one uh, passage from a letter that he wrote to his parents when he was first embarking on the renunciate life. This was written when he was 13 years old. My dearest parents, you gave me birth with all the freedoms and advantages of human life, and you have cared for me with love from my infancy till now. Since you introduced me to an authentic teacher, it is thanks to your kindness that I have encountered the path of liberation. After hearing, thinking about, and meditating on the life of my perfect teacher, I have resolved to slip quietly away from all this life's concerns and roam through empty, uninhabited valleys. Father and mother, stay in your handsome lofty house. I, your young son, long instead for empty caves. Thank you for the fine soft clothes you gave me, yet I don't need them. I would rather dress in plain white felt. I leave my valuable belongings behind. A begging bowl, a staff, and dharma robes are all I need. Although for now your son will hide away in mountain glens, your smiling faces will be with me always. Nor shall I forget your loving care. And if I reach the citadel of experience and realization, I shall repay your kindness. Of that you can be sure. This was written when Rinpoche was 13. And when he was 15, he uh, left his teacher to enter a cave where he spent seven years from 15 to 22. And three of those years, he actually didn't speak. Sometime after that, Continuing on in his practice, he spent four years at a spot in Tibet called White Grove, a very isolated place. Again, I have a photo that some of you can see. His hut was on top of a hill, looking down into an isolated valley, and then across to broad, deep mountains in the background. So when he was in his, say, early to mid-twenties, he spent four years in this place, and then 22 years in retreat altogether. Another Tibetan Lama who intrigues me a lot is named Lama Shabkar. He was born in 1781, and he began a three-year retreat on a remote island in Tibet when he was 25. That would put the date in the early 1800s, about the time on this continent that we were uh, making the Louisiana Purchase and taking away more land from the native people and preparing to fight the War of 1812 with the British just to give you a level of the enlightened nature of life in America at the time. Lama Shabkar wrote one of the greatest meditation manuals um, that I've ever seen called Flight of the Garuda in the Nyingma School of Meditation. It's really a beautiful book. There's a translation available by Keith Dowman. And he wrote it when he was on this remote island. So as you know, it gets pretty cold in Tibet in the winter. And he was staying in this cave uh, without heat, And there were just a few other people on this remote island. But they would come and ask him meditation questions. He he was already renowned, even though young, as a great meditator. 
So Lama Shabkar found that that was disrupting his meditation a bit too much. So for this one particular winter on the island, he mudded himself into his cave. He just took in some supplies of butter and sampa and water and completely closed himself off from human contact for the whole of the winter. And for the rest of the year, he said, throughout the year, my teacher's attendant occasionally brought me goat's milk and curd. In the summer, some vegetables were to be found. By the end of autumn, however, my supplies were exhausted, and for two months I was reduced to eating only a thin soup of tsampa, roasted barley, a staple in the Tibetan diet. Again, this is not an austerity that we will inflict on you during this retreat. You will have really great food, as you know. But this is the kind of dedication and courage that practitioners have had over the years. This was another statement of his commitment. Until I achieve unchanging stability of mind, I won't remain in busy worldly places, but will stay alone in isolated places of retreat. Teacher, please accept this offering made to please you. The length of my practice shall equal the length of my life. A beautiful vow. So coming into this retreat situation, of course, you all give up a lot. You know, you give up contact with your loved ones, with your families, with friends, give up the opportunity to speak, you give up special foods, reading, writing, music, television, you even give up your email. Big sacrifice. Actually, just to keep up with the technology at Spirit Rock now, part of the manager's talk is that we have to ask people to turn their cell phones off during a retreat. It happens. And I think, you know, it's only in another year or two we're going to have to ask people to turn off wireless internet access also. It's all coming. So it's getting more and more complicated. So it's not that there's anything wrong with all these things that we enjoy in our daily lives that bring us a lot of pleasure. The problem is that for most of us, we lean on them. We're used to depending on them. And when they're taken away, we feel unhappy. We feel lonely or we feel deprived. So that's a sign to us that there's an aspect of the Dharma we haven't quite understood because consciousness itself is self-sustaining, is self-supporting. But when our consciousness has become wrapped around an object, another appearance, or bound to that object, our, our being becomes slightly distorted. We become off-center. So coming into a situation like this, we really have the opportunity to let the mind return to its natural strength and its natural steadiness. Actually, because consciousness is self-supporting and self-sustaining, we don't need those other things. We don't need to rest on them. We don't need to rely on them. They're terrific grounds. Relationships are terrific grounds for understanding, for developing compassion and developing love, but we don't need to depend on them. So in this situation, we get to rediscover our initial strength, which is really our own true nature and our birthright. The essential spirit of the renunciate life is something that really applies here. It's the spirit of taking what's given taking that which is freely offered and not demanding more and not taking more. 
And if you've practiced in Asia, you probably know this spirit really well. When I was a monk in Thailand, our whole training was we took what was placed in our bowl. We might like it or we might not. That wasn't really so important. It took some acculturation to get to um, appreciate some of the things we were offered. Goose eggs, for instance, that have been pickled. If you haven't had them, it's kind of a wake-up call to the taste buds. Um, Most of the places I practiced were forest monasteries, and we tend to eat one meal a day there. It was usually served at 8 in the morning, and then there wasn't anything until the next morning at 8 o'clock. So when we uh, gathered the food for our morning meal, we were usually really hungry. And sometimes it was great food, and sometimes, I have to say, (laughs) it was pretty disappointing, especially when you're that hungry. If you haven't, for instance, eaten a red fish curry on an empty stomach at 8 in the morning, you haven't really lived. So the place I spent most of my time was Wat Swan Mok, which was Ajahn Buddhadasa's monastery in the south of Thailand. Ajahn Buddhadasa had a very, very spacious mind in practice. He incorporated many different elements in his teaching, Mahayana elements, Zen elements, Tibetan art, very broad-minded man. And there weren't many demands placed on us at his monastery. He just wanted to set us uh, sort of loose in the forest and let our minds calm and let us develop meditation. And the food at his monastery was the worst of anywhere I practiced in Thailand. It was absolutely the worst food. And I actually think he intended it that way. So that people wouldn't just sort of come and hang out because it was just a comfortable place to be. You really had to want to practice in order to stay there. So it was a good filter, actually. It was a great spirit in that monastery. In the Zen tradition, they say that the mouth of a renunciate should be like a furnace. It can burn the finest sandalwood or dried cow dung with equal ease. So you won't be served that either. But please keep that in mind as you accept the meals that the kitchen prepares. Sometimes they'll be to your liking and sometimes they may not. Most of the time, they probably will be. There's a saying up on the notice board in the kitchen at Spirit Rock. It says that um, when we serve you delicious food, that's our practice. This is the cook speaking to the yogis. When we serve you delicious food, that's our practice. When we serve you undelicious food, that's your practice. So, please try to work with it in that way. Know that the cooks really are putting their hearts and souls into the food that they prepare for you. And then try to work with your own likes and dislikes really as an important part of practice. It's another way to release grasping and to release fixed views, really to open to the reality of what is. In the monastery, sometimes our accommodations weren't so ideal. Again, at Swan Mok, we were living in little huts out in the forest And there were all the tropical forest creatures who would come to visit us. And I could tell um, sometimes that one had come to visit because I could hear in the next cabin over a thump, thump, thump. Actually, it was more like a bang, bang, bang on the tin roof from inside. And I knew what that meant. It meant my friend was hitting a stick against uh, the roof of his house from inside because a snake had fallen off onto the roof from a tree and he wanted to scare it off. Because if he didn't scare it off, what it would do is slither down to the edge of the roof and then come in under the underhang 
and make a nice cozy place for itself in the rafters of his cabin. And because half of the snakes were poisonous, he really didn't want that to happen. So I'd hear that thump, 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 and I'd know that a snake was on the roof. One night in the middle of the night, I got up from my kuti, my hut, to go out and pee in the forest. And I was walking back up the stairs, put my hand on the handrail right on top of a scorpion. Boom. That was a sting. That was a, that was a painful moment. Another night I was just going to bed. I just sort of tucked my mosquito net in around my little mat and I felt another bite in my foot that actually was the most, um, it became the most painful sensation I think I've ever experienced. It was a poisonous centipede. They are really um, scary looking creatures. They're sort of orange colored. They're about uh, eight inches long and their pinchers look like they make up about half of the body. They're really wicked looking pinchers at the top. And they inject this venom. It felt like what it did was um, inflict about an eight-hour cramp into my muscle. And it wasn't until the next morning that it relaxed enough that my foot felt normal again. So again, you don't have to deal with that kind of stuff here. Of course, you have other things to deal with. We really wish everybody could be in single rooms. You know, the long-term plan is for, this, is for the cat skills to be transformed and for everyone on this retreat to be in single rooms, but unfortunately we're not there yet. So some of you may have really wanted a single room and it just wasn't possible to offer you one. Some of you may have accepted being in a double room and then you go, hmm, I don't know about this roommate. Others of you may be in a room and you wish you were on a different side of the building. Now why can't I be in a south-facing room? Why does my room have to be above the laundry? And again, These are the things that we need to accommodate and really work with as practice. To look at the force of uh, wanting or aversion that comes in the mind and to take our stand of mindfulness right there. Not to make a demand on the staff that it be different because in most cases it's just not possible. But to really work with it as part of our own renunciation, our own letting go inwardly. And that's where we can really expand our freedom, our internal freedom. One of the other big renunciations that you make here is around communicating. As Michelle talked about last night, part of the silence obviously is not speaking to one another, is not writing uh, letters or receiving letters or cards. We give up phone calls. We give up reading and writing. These are big changes. So we really ask for your support in that. And this this is an area where the impact on the community is especially strong. When we have the motivation that we're practicing to benefit all beings, the beings we can most immediately benefit are those right around us. So please remember that your uh, guarding of the silence, your attention to the silence, will not only help your own practice, but it will really also help everyone who's practicing around you. When we give up all these outer things, it definitely has an impact on the inner life. We become less burdened. Our hearts become open in a way because we drop off a lot of unnecessary activities. The channels are really clear for the Dharma to come in. One of my Tibetan teachers was just talking about this phenomenon. You know how you go into the toilet on an airplane and you lock the door and then it says occupied, or as he says, occupied. 
So it's kind of like when we busy ourselves with all the other activities, there's a sign on our hearts that says, occupied. And then the Dharma can't come in. So when we drop those things, then the heart is really open to receive. It's open to receive the teachings of life. And life is teaching us all the time when our eyes and ears and hearts are open. This is a beautiful aspect of the simplicity of retreat. This is from a writer named Scott Sanders uh, from Audubon Magazine who had just come back into his home after being away on a backpacking trip and he was totally shocked by all the stuff in his house. He said, one moment I can lay everything I need on the corner of a poncho. The next moment it seems I couldn't fit all my furniture into a warehouse. So I vow to purchase nothing that I don't really need, to give away everything that is excess, and to refuse all chores that don't arise from central concerns. The simplicity I seek is not the enforced austerity of the poor. I seek instead the richness of a gathered and deliberate life, which comes from letting one's belongings and commitments be few in number and high in quality. This is really a great description of what you all are doing here. The richness of a gathered and deliberate life in which your belongings and commitments are few in number and high in quality. When the outer activities drop away, sometimes what we see isn't always so easy to see. Michelle likes to use the expression of being here through the autumn as we watch the leaves fall off the trees, what gets exposed are the bare branches. You might say the framework of the trees, the more fundamental framework. In a similar way, when we drop our outer concerns, what gets exposed for us as meditators are the inner structures of the mind. So we start to see the fundamental patterns of our minds that don't have so much to do with the externals. These forces of liking and not liking, of wanting and fearing, of preferring one thing and not another, the whole complex of grasping gets laid out clearly before us. And sometimes that's not so easy to take. At this level of renunciation, often some of our uh, deepest uh, fears and emotions get triggered. I notice myself often in the first uh, few days of retreat, I often go through what feels like kind of a grief for the letting go of the things I've left behind. My uh, wife or my activities, uh, my commitments, my friends, and so on. And it can bring up um, insecurity or loneliness or feelings that were not so worthwhile. So all of these are part of seeing that inner structure, seeing that the bareness of our hearts and minds, just as they are. And this is a place of great learning. I don't know if you know this uh, Western Tibetan nun named Ani Tenzin Palmo. She was one of the first Westerners to take robes, and she ordained with a teacher in uh, India in 1964 with a Tibetan teacher named Kamtrul Rinpoche. She was 21 years old at the time. She was born in uh, London. 
And she had to spend quite a few years getting her teacher to give her permission to do solitary practice. But when she gained it, she went off and spent 12 years practicing in a cave, way up in the Himalayas, about 12,000 feet up. Really cold, really isolated location. And she did a number of um, extended retreats there. One retreat she did, this is toward the end of her time, she did a three-year retreat without speaking to anyone. Her supporters would bring her up food, but she wouldn't talk to them. So talk about integration uh, struggles. She was nearing the end of her retreat, but not not yet ready to come out, and uh, she heard a knock on the door. This is very strange. Nobody's supposed to be talking to me. But she goes over and she opens the door, and there's an Indian policeman standing there who's very enraged at her. He says, oh, I'm very sorry, miss, but your visa is not in order. You have to leave the country tomorrow. At the end of three years without speaking to anybody, how would you like that for an integration week? Wow. But she said, please give me a day. I want to come down. I want to talk to you. She went down and talked. He actually became sympathetic because he also had a love of the spiritual life. And he let her stay and complete her retreat, but then she had to leave. So now she's come back into the West and is living near Assisi in Italy. She came to Spirit Rock for uh, a visit and a public talk, and I met her and had a chance to chat with her a little bit. She's very grounded, down-to-earth, very clear. Uh, I had a very, very good feeling for her. I also told her while I was talking to her how much I uh, appreciated her commitment to long practice because 12 years in a cave was something that was beyond me at the present time. And she was just very matter-of-fact about it. She said, you know, it really wasn't such a big deal. It was just what I wanted to do. And I bet that a lot of you, if you went and told your friends and your family exactly what you're doing on this retreat, they'd go, wow, how can you do six weeks or three months without talking to somebody else? How can you possibly do that? And yet for yourself, you may know, you may feel, ah, this is just what I want to do. But it's also a big deal that you're doing it. It's a big deal. The journalist who was writing a book about her, there's a great bio of her now called Cave in the Snow. This journalist said, aren't you escaping when you go on retreat? Fat chance, huh? Don't we wish? And Tenzin Palmo replied, not at all. To my mind, worldly life is an escape. When you have a problem, you can turn on the television, phone a friend, go out for a coffee. In a cave, however, you have no one to turn to but yourself. When problems arise, you have no choice but to go through with them and come out the other side. In a cave, you face your own nature in the raw, and you have to find a way of dealing with it. This is really our situation too. And in a situation like this, as many of you know, the inner life becomes extraordinarily vivid. Cutting off the outer entanglements really wakes up the inner. Just like when you're in a concert and you're listening to the symphony with your eyes open and all of a sudden you just close your eyes and go more within, how much more alive the music becomes. It's the same way in our setting. As we drop off our connection to the outer, the inner life becomes extraordinarily alive and awake in all its beauty and in all its glory 
and in all its difficulty too. This is part and parcel of the package. Sometimes our emotional reactions become quite strong on retreat. This phenomenon that I'm sure you all know called yogi mind. Many great examples of yogi mind over the years. I think my favorite is the one uh, where a manager at a Yucca Valley retreat in California got a note asking if he could please contact the airline so that they could change the flight plat patterns so the planes didn't have to fly over the retreat area. And this was a serious request. Sometimes there's a little bit of perspective lost in the middle of yogi mind. Sometimes where this lack of perspective really comes in is around our relationships with one another. In the middle of retreat, I'm sure you know, we can get on each other's nerves a little bit. Things that we do will annoy or frustrate one another. The person who always comes into the sitting late, the person who almost knocks you over in the lunch line, uh, the person who won't wait their turn and, and dishes or by the tea urn, someone who wears a crinkly nylon jacket in the middle of all the meditations and just happens to be sitting right next to you. In one retreat, quite a long retreat, I was sitting next to someone uh, who breathed really loudly. And I had to make a choice really early on in the retreat. Was I going to follow my breath or was I going to follow his? <laughs> I had an easy, uh, two easy objects to go to. So, you know, one of these typical notes might be something like, um, Dear fellow meditator, we've been asked many times not to wear nylon in the hall. In case you haven't noticed, this is actually a mindfulness practice. Please don't ever wear that nylon jacket in here again. And of course you know how the notes are always signed. Metta. (laughs) Always signed Metta. And in fact, what's so funny is when we're in the middle of one of those attacks of yogi mind and we're about to write a note like that, we might not even know that we're angry. This is actually the way the hindrances work. You know, the hindrances sort of swoop in below our radar and they're in full display and they still haven't quite crossed our screen yet. And we don't know quite what's on the map. And so we think this is all very reasonable. Well, of course, anybody would write this person such a note at this time. I'm doing it for the benefit of all sentient beings, right? But if you've ever been on the receiving end of one of those notes, you know that they can be really devastating. As we go through the days and weeks here, we all become really, really sensitive. Part of the opening up process Indian teacher Goenkaji describes this as open-heart surgery without the anesthetic. Part of the opening process is that you become very vulnerable. And everything that touches you, touches you quite deeply and immediately. And when you feel a burst of anger from somebody else in this sanctuary, in this safe place, it can have an extraordinarily disturbing impact. And it, it honestly can take days or even a week for someone to recover from a note like that. So please, 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 please don't write each other notes. If there's any communication you feel needs to to happen with a fellow meditator, please do it through one of us or through the course manager. But please don't contact each other directly. It can be so disturbing. Really, it it can ruin days of someone's practice. So please be very, very careful um, in that area. 
And if you feel you really need to write an angry note, you know, better to write it to one of the teachers. Joseph is a good person to write to, actually. If you're, you know, if you're, if you're really upset, Joseph is so spacious that he would be a good choice. Um, so much better than writing to one another. So again, on the retreat, we just take these uh, turmoils of our own mind as part and parcel of the experience. And we try not to share them with the rest of the retreatants who have their own turmoils probably enough to deal with. So this facet of outer renunciation is so important because it kind of clears the decks for the inner work. And then inwardly, it's really important also to have a heart that's free from a lot of grasping. There's this inner attitude of renunciation where we don't hold so tightly to our own hopes and fears and likes and dislikes and wants and not wants. And what that does is it really creates a lot of space within. Creates a great deal of um, openness where we can start to really accommodate our own movements of heart and mind. So this is sort of the play of our practice over this time together. Outwardly, you might say in the realm of discipline or behavior to one another, we follow the form really closely. We take really great care with our actions with one another. And then inwardly, we're very open, very light, very informal. That's a great combination and a great direction in practice. I just came from a retreat at Spirit Rock that I was sitting that was led by a Tibetan teacher named Sokni Rinpoche and a Buddhist monk, a Theravadan Buddhist monk named Ajahn Amaro, who's taught here on a number of occasions and I'm sure many of you know. It was the first time that I've ever seen a Theravadan monk and a Tibetan teacher teaching a retreat together and it was really a beautiful thing to see. They got on so well together. The, the two, it was clear at the end of the retreat, they really had a lot of affection and also respect uh, for one another. And Sokni Rinpoche, the Tibetan teacher, said something very sweet at the end of Ajahn Amaro. He said, um, he said, you know, this bhikkhu, I never met anybody like him before. He has very strict vinaya. In his discipline, he's impeccable. But inwardly, his heart's very open. He said, I never met like that before. Usually the ones with strict vinaya are very tight inside. This one, very good, very good discipline and very open within. This is really a great model for our own practice, to keep finding that uh, joy and ease in ourselves as we stay really careful about our interactions with one another. It's the best way to practice. This again is from Drukchen Rinpoche. We must be still within ourselves, still and calm, And yet we must also, at the same time, be moving forward towards each other and towards the world. What is not useful for this endless transformation must be abandoned. Anything that prevents a finer flowering of our spirit must be left behind. The clearest and wisest person becomes awake, becomes the world. She enters without fear and without hope into the full presence of reality. The Buddha himself said that discipline is just the first step of a sequence that leads to freedom. 
The way the sequence begins, he said, is that discipline is for the sake of restraint. And restraint is for the sake of freedom from remorse. Freedom from remorse is for the sake of gladness of mind. So remember that that's really the spirit behind renunciation, behind restraint. It's for our own gladness of heart and mind. I'd just like to close with a quotation from the Buddha where he was talking in a sutta about his own liberation, his own enlightenment. And we remember the spur to his practice was the encounter with the four heavenly messengers in the beginning. This then is the summation, the summary, the summation of his practice also in relation to the heavenly messengers. Then friends, being myself subject to birth, having understood the danger in what is subject to birth, I attained the unborn, supreme security from bondage, Nibbana. Being subject to aging, having understood the danger in what is subject to aging, I attained the unaging, supreme security from bondage, Nibbana. Being subject to sickness, I attained the unailing security of bondage, Nibbana. Being subject to death, I attained the deathless security from bondage, Nibbana. And being subject to sorrow, having understood the danger in what is subject to sorrow, I attained the sorrowless supreme security from bondage, Nibbana. The knowledge and vision arose in me. My deliverance is unshakable. There is no more renewal of becoming. Let's just sit together for a minute. This talk was given by Guy Armstrong at Spirit Rock Meditation Center on September 23, 1999. It is an offering of the Dharma Seed. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.